0: you're listening to three c r radio and yeah
1: doing their cover of Boney M's Daddy Cool, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are artists Fabio Perozzi and Susie Melhotra from Living Positive Victoria. 3CR! Well, Fabio Perozzi is a Melbourne-based illustrator, originally from Italy, and Fabio begins our interview by talking about the COVID pandemic in his hometown of Milan.
2: Actually, it's crazy because uh, they had the moment where everything was uh, really uh, scary. And we really, I can just using well saying over the top because like uh, they couldn't do anything. It was even worse than us. Even going out, you need to have like a, a status declaration They you have like military, every street stopping you, asking you where why you were out. After the, the, the first wave, and as you know, in, in Italy, we have opposite seasons. So when the summer arrived there, the cases dropped uh, drastically and everything changed again. And now they're living as They are completely free. The government uh, it's followed the, a different path that we have here. They prefer to open again everything because the economy is like really collapsing there. So now they everything it's open again and they're thinking, oh, is there any virus around uh, or not? Because it's not like France that were having like 10,000 uh, cases a day. They are still like having a thousand a day, and they think it's not much. But obviously, when the season changing, which is like going to winter, they're expecting a second wave, so they are getting ready for that. But at the moment, when I speak with someone there, everyone say, "Oh, it's like change- It's normal now. They are going out without masks. The the pubs or clubs they are open like in the past." It's obviously they have uh, uh, social distancing uh, rules like here, but it's not so strict, so when i, I try to explain how we're locked down here and what we're getting through, they they tell me, "Oh, that's what's before, but now it's normal." and for like even the schools, they just reopen, and they're going to school like normal which is like crazy because uh, I think after you have uh, huge numbers uh, just a few months ago, you should be careful. But Italy is a little bit, I, I don't think only Italy, I think that the problem that the money is always first. And that was the government thinking that if people don't have money, the economy is going to be a real disaster. Like, uh, also, it's funny because uh, I have a few friends that are traveling around Europe and I'm in contact with them asking, like, they were in Italy for a month, then they went to UK and now they are in Berlin. And I'm asking every time they go in another city, visiting and spending time there, how is the life there? And I can see the difference between, like, Italy and the other countries, like, Clearly, you can understand that as Italian, I understand my country. I can stop thinking that we are a bit crazy. We sometimes we just think, "Oh, that's fine. Everything is going to be okay." So, and at the end, when we face up the problem, we try to sort it out in. very fast way, and that is going to be for the second wave. I'm, I'm I'm expecting like that for my country, that they're going to get to the point where they're the second wave, and then at that point they say, okay, now we're doing something, <laughs> which is like a bit crazy, because this virus, it's really dangerous, so you need to be really careful, especially if you re- already had history when you have so many deaths, and you need to look or not, not only to all people in the moment elderly, but also the young people because this become really huge for everyone. Fabio, tell us
1: about the experience that led you to
2: come to Australia. Tell us about your immigration journey. Uh, I've, I'm 47 now and I've been here nearly eight years. Coming to Australia around 40 was a big change I was lucky enough because my partner is Australian. So coming here was a, a process to like normal person at my age was like, if you don't have an Australian partner, it's more difficult. Uh, coming here also was a, not a starting new life, but try to compare what we have in my country, what we have here. Uh, especially in Milan, because Milan is a, a city that you can really compare like London and Berlin. Everything it's constantly moving and you have so much going on. When Melbourne is, and also Milan is really fast, everything is really related to working, 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 producing and having something new every day because that's where it should be. Melbourne is really for me a bit old fashioned and relaxed. So coming here for me was oh my, I had to to slow down my style of life. And it was surprising because to adapt my routine to what we have here uh, it was a bit difficult at the beginning. Uh I'm at the moment I'm loving to be here because uh usually I try to go to visit my parents, my friends in Italy once a year. And every time I'm there, I can see that it's like, the life is moving, but not in the way the people really want. Like, it's moving in keep having the same problem that they have in the past. When here in Melbourne, it's like, life is moving slowly and improving. And that's what I'll I really like about to be here, like uh, also I'm getting close to 50, so it's different when you are younger and you think, oh, I'm 20, I'm 30, I need to do some experience for my life. At this point of my life, I've done so much because I travel all around the world and to be in Australia for me, it's uh, really nice, but obviously, again, That's because I was lucky enough to, uh, in the the process to come here and to start my new life here, was not so difficult like another person could have, like not having the same thing I have in uh, to start that. I think that if uh, with my partner, uh, when we decided to move to Australia, we're thinking it's gonna be forever or it's gonna be just for a short term. Because we were thinking about that. And the th- at the beginning, we were thinking maybe we want to go back to, uh, to live in, in Europe because what we miss in Australia, the only thing you really miss here, it's the history. Because obviously, when you live in Italy or another part of Europe, when you look around, you really have so much about history and everything about the path of your country when australia it's not exactly the same and also how easy is traveling around like australia when you want to go to one part of the country to another part is really long trip and really expensive when in europe it's really not so much like and easy to do like when we were in in Italy, we will try to travel at least once a month, going to visit friends in another city around Europe. Here, it's not so easy. Like, you have to plan and probably you're going to travel like two times a year if you're lucky. That's the only thing. But the rest, I really love Melbourne. Like, for me, it's a really nice city.
1: Fabio, you create art under the name Little Monkey.
2: What inspired that name? Uh, that's my uh, nickname that my partner uh, gave to me. First, because I'm not really tall. <laughs> I, I'm 170. 170 so, uh, and second one, because uh, I'm always being really fast in everything I do. And exactly like a little monkey, full of energy. Uh, that's why he told me, oh, why are you not using that nickname for like your uh, artworks so that's why
1: you're listening to an interview with fabio perozzi on 3cr it's in your face tell us about your artwork especially your use of colors
2: my experience with color is like more uh, related to my background as a graphic designer than illustrator. In the past, I was not drawing a lot. I was more uh, using a style that I can define as a patchwork, using uh, image and uh, vectors together. And the effect with the color was to create a kind of high uh, catching effect. Then lately, I was trying to, with this uh, COVID situation, I was trying to find a way to express more more my creativity because uh, everything changed and couldn't express anymore with a program as a Photoshop, Illustrator like before. Then I I decided to buy an, an iPad and using my creativity with that. And there I discovered that the color come out more easily than before. And that's why... I was thinking, okay, maybe for who is looking my design, my drawing, is not enough just uh, what I try to do. Like. So I don't know if you understand. It's not easy. As you can see, my first language is not English; it's Italian, so it's quite stru- <laughs> difficult to explain. But everything for me, it's more related. It's visual effect than really uh, just uh, an image. So uh, my technique is like uh, try to find an image that capture my idea to what I want to have at the end and then uh, uh, work straight away with the color on. Then I start to draw on top of that because I prefer to see the image changing uh, with color, than drawing before than that. And usually I try to uh, find an image that uh, I think at the end can be uh, unique as a result. Uh, And again, probably this is related also with uh, the thing that when I was young, I was a a manga collector and comics collector. So... I always had the idea to move in that direction when it's like uh, everything it's really more imaginative than uh just driving that probably that's because also uh I'm a self-taught so I've done everything using just step by step my uh creativity than uh, having a real someone teaching me how to draw or how to use the colours.
1: Tell us about the queer themes that run through your work. There's a lot of kind of you know interpretation of the male body that's happening.
2: Probably because I think when you see an image uh, it's nice that you uh, see the sexual part of the image but not too much. Like I, I think that uh, male characters are m- sometimes more interesting than female. And when I try to represent a female, I have more the concept of a uh, pin-up as uh, a female image. Probably that's also because uh, as a gay, uh, I always look around an image that is a little bit uh, like uh, in the a fashion journal and that's again because uh, I was born in Rome but I lived in Milan for most of my life and Milan's, Milan is a fashion capital so they are when you try to see a a, a fashion journal there is all the image they're all really uh, colorful and sometimes really uh, reference with when especially when there are female characters, uh, really perfect. So for me, it's sometimes I move also in the uh, male direction, going in something really with uh, outlines uh, similar again to the cartoon, but really nice, exactly like uh, what you can see in a fashion uh, magazine. It's interesting
1: because some of your your illustrations of women are exquisite, and there's one on your Instagram account under my skin of three women of colour that's a beautiful illustration and also it has a real kind of camp theme running through it.
2: Yeah, because later I was thinking I want to try to represent everything, not just a specific character. I keep looking on Instagram and I can see that someone, uh, some illustrator become specific just with one element and going over and over exploring in this in different direction but with just one for me it's important represent a bit everything to show that uh, i can draw not just one element but different kind of elements so i was thinking that it's important also represent uh, uh, black women in the way that how beautiful they are in just wearing sometime a fular in their head, like for me, that was like really nice. And lately I'm drawing like uh, Indian dancers or flamenco dancers because I think that's another thing representing different element, elements that not only uh, can capture the attention of the gay community, but also different communities.
1: Have a real commitment to, to diversity with your illustration.
2: Yeah, 100 percent, because I think that I don't want to be static. I want to try to move uh, over and over and every time try to explore and see where I can get. It's still I'm still learning because for me, every time is try to do something new and exploring the way I can represent what I like and. Lately, that's uh, it's a process that really makes me happy. I'm, I'm surprised that sometimes I can even make, in a single day, a couple of that. Uh, sometimes they're really articulate and really colorful, uh, probably because uh, the process now becomes more fluid, the way how I try to draw than before. But it's still it's something that... Uh, I think it's important when you are in a, in a time like we are now in the pandemic to find a way where you can, even when you are in your home and you can go out, you can do something to make you happy. I think that everyone at the moment is doing pretty the same, like trying to find a way to, uh, still having kind of routine and at the same time trying to not Lose their mind because obviously it's not like before where you 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 were free to do whatever you want. Everything changed. For me, it's like drawing is exactly like that. I'm lucky because I'm still going to work every day, but when I come back at home, there is not much to do. And drawing for me is the way to make me feeling free. I think it's a bit the same for everyone in different ways. Someone probably is doing gardening. Somewhere else is doing something else. For me, it's like drawing at the moment. So
1: it sounds like you've been more productive as a drawer and illustrator through the pandemic, through lockdown.
2: Actually, yes. Like, uh, when I started, I was not expecting to do so much because I was thinking, oh, I want to just try and see what I can do. But now, every time I start to draw, I see that uh, when I finish one, I say, oh, maybe I start another one. And lately... You know, as like a, someone try to see also what other people are doing at the moment using their creativity. I can see lots of people looking and like uh, Facebook groups uh, about who use the same program that I'm using now, Procreate. And I can see that everyone is saying the same. Oh, say, oh, I'm so lucky because in this pandemic, my creativity jumped to from one to ten. Because spending more time on my own, I try to be more creative to to see how can that help me not to be, I don't know, a little bit down or depressed because I'm alone. And I think that when I, like you are a creative person, this is the way to to get over everything when make you feel a little bit not happy or a little bit, mm, this, this time is really difficult.
1: Fabio Perosi, thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR, it's been a great pleasure.
2: Thanks a lot for having me.
3: Now he
1: Debate with Stevie. We also heard from Jamira Choir with Canned Heat. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James, while Susie Melhotra is the Director of Programs and People at Living Positive Victoria, and I spoke with her this week.
4: I've been with the organisation Living Positive Victoria for the best part of 15 years. Um, I'd like to say that's half my life, but that's a bit of a lie. Um, So I've been with the organisation for a long time and seen it actually move evolved evolve from a very small organization to an organization of about 18 staff where we work very much specifically with people living with HIV. So it's about supporting, educating, um, assisting them navigate healthcare services um, and running a whole load of uh, groups and workshops that bring people who are socially isolated, undergoing financial distress or just need some Someone to help kind of build their resilience and and their sort of inner capacity to live a healthy and well meaning life.
1: So, tell us about the programs that you specifically work on.
4: Okay, well, we run quite a few programs. Um, All of them are programs with um, the notion of building somebody's capacity in mind. So, we have a group called Phoenix, which is about people who are newly diagnosed. And that's usually a weekend workshop pre COVID days. of about sort of, as you can imagine, somebody being newly diagnosed even today can be quite a challenging um, situation for people to be in. So what we do is we get a group of people together, whether they're clinicians, other peers who've gone through similar experiences, um, and just a whole range of information about what to do, how to look after yourself, what treatments mean, where you can go for um, psychological help if you need it, or just where you can find a friend. We also run um, a group called PLDI, which is Positive Leadership Development Institute. Um, And that really is about, it's a weekend workshop again, about building your resilience and understanding um, how to challenge uh, a lot of the HIV stigma that people still face, um, and also to find a sense of self and building self-esteem. Many of our groups actually cater to a whole diverse group of uh, community members. Um, it's it can be men who have sex with men, but we also run a whole load of groups for heterosexual families, for children, uh, for families with children, um, individuals, and especially women as well. Um, so many of these groups can be modified to suit them. We run retreats for people for families, um, and we run a whole load of groups that we think really sort of bring people in when they're sitting on their own. Um, you know, without any family or support. So we have Planet Positive, which is a quarterly, monthly social catch up. and um, we also run something called the Christmas Hampers, which is something that we're so passionate about every year. And that's uh, you know, acknowledging that people are on their own, usually at Christmas, you know, they may have been ostracized from family or they don't have a really strong support network. And what we do is um we just deliver hampers at home to them. So it makes them feel that somebody is thinking of them and caring for them on that day.
1: So what's your favourite programme and why?
4: Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, Do you know, it's always the new kid on the block, basically. Um, I think we get so passionate about the new programmes that we're we're so privileged to be able to still develop because we get such support and good funding. Um, We've started a new programme called Peer Navigation, And that's a peer run program, which um, actually addresses uh, the notion again of what it's like to be newly diagnosed. So we have a great relationship with a lot of the uh, GPs in Melbourne. And when somebody comes through their doors and is diagnosed as being positive, the first people they call is us after they've sorted out their treatments. And they basically have a peer to kind of help them navigate the whole, you know, the whole kind of, head game of um, you know medication support mental health and, and that's it's been a fantastic program we've been running it for two years it's evaluated really well and we've just now actually recruited another member to the team who's going to be looking particularly at supporting older people living with HIV because people living with HIV aren't a homogenous group of people. Everyone has different needs, you know, different expectations, different comorbidities. So that's basically my favourite at the moment. And I'm sorry if I insult anyone else.
1: <laughs> so it really sounds like the work that you do is focused on empowering people.
4: Absolutely. Um, it's building their capacity to take charge of their lives, to make the decisions that are right for them, to make um to make decisions about their support networks about what assistance they need, um, and you know we still live in a society where stigma and discrimination are real and ugly and you know visible, but it 's about giving people tools to actually challenge that, you know to get the information right to have those conversations, whether they 're in your social groups or your family groups, um, to say well no th- this is this is what 's true about HIV things like you equals you if somebody 's on HIV treatment and it's managed you can have something called an undetectable viral load that stops you transmitting HIV sexually so there's some amazing advancements that are used to build capacity for people with HIV
1: how would you define empowerment beyond building capacity or is it very much about capacity only
4: No, no. It's about building self-esteem. It's about building a strong voice. It's about being resilient in the face of adversity. It's, as I said, it's about taking charge, being in control of your life to make well-informed decisions with all the right information and all the right support.
1: And of course, that very much evolved out of uh, HIV AIDS being uh, a pandemic in the 80s and early 90s where, you know, people were very disempowered by stigma and also the medical system and the community was very much about finding its voice and and being in charge of its own direction to kind of, you know, forge a path forward beyond that, beyond those constraints.
4: Absolutely. And those were grassroots movements that were led from the community um, and, you know, one of the mantras that sort of community organisations like I have, ourselves have is nothing about us without us. Um, putting people with HIV at the forefront and at the centre of all decisions that are made about the community. Um, not somebody doing a top-down approach where, you know, saying, well, this is what you're going to do, this is the medication we're going to allow you to have. This is about me, an eye-centred approach, and we call that the meaningful involvement of people living with HIV, where you are at a decision-making table um, about the impact of what um, any you know, any structural or strategic decisions made about HIV. Do
1: you find that because of the advancements in medication and the fact that people aren't, you know, dying like they were in the 80s and 90s, that the living with HIV communities is often overlooked by the, by the LGBTIQ community in other communities and that that presents some challenges?
4: Absolutely. Um, it's actually twofold. Um, I think there's a – I hate using that word complacency, but I'd say there's almost an indifference – that, you know, people are living longer with HIV, we've got amazing medication, um, but it's the psychosocial stuff that still exists, you know, and that's what people always need to be aware of. S- discrimination still happens on a very frequent basis. Stigma where, you know, as I said, you could be ostracized from family or social groups and let's not even go down the path of sexual stigma. Um so it's it what that has an impact on is like sort of diminishing the importance and the visibility of what HIV still is today, but also you know and I really and this is being a really honest funding you know people don't necessarily see HIV as a cause anymore you know we the sector is really underfunded um, and to be able to run programs you know as so some of the ones that I've told you um, about they still need support they still need um, the longevity of like kind of long-term funding uh, to make them thrive and prosper. And, and as a result, you know, change the lives of people living with HIV.
1: You mentioned sexual stigma. I imagine that's an issue that people living with HIV raise a lot and it must have some particular challenges for women living with the virus in particular.
4: Absolutely. And, um, and, you know, many of the women, for them, it's about choice or lack of sometimes. And, you know, we have traditional notions of what women or mothers are like in families, and they're not necessarily front and center and priority. Sometimes when it comes to medication or seeking out assistance, many of the women that we uh, we deal with are also not financially independent. And that has massive repercussions. Um, for making somebody feel that they're, that they're worth anything. There's a lot of stuff. Um, there's a lot of issues that are very particular to women um, as they are to older people living with HIV, young people living with HIV, and whether you're looking at heterosexuals or gay men living with HIV. 3CR. You're
1: listening to an interview with Susie Malhotra from Living Positive Victoria on 3CR's In Your Face. What are some of the most common challenges that people living with HIV are raising
4: during the pandemic? Oh, multiple. And I'd like to say that they're the same, but they're not. What they are is a lot more um, enhanced. So we already dealt with a community of people with HIV who were socially isolated who are financially in you know financially distressed, you know, um some people who've been living long for H- living longer with HIV are now in their sixties mm-hmm. and seventies, um, are still living in social housing, um, still not able to work. Um and yeah, it becomes really hard to kind of fall part of a society when you don't have that privilege of their opportunity. What the pandemic has done is actually really exacerbated how lonely people are. Um, how people are really struggling um, financially. Um, And, you know, and we we talk about the issues of domestic violence, you know, that that kind of perpetrates some members of our community as well. So all our programs are really trying to be readapted and repurposed to kind of bring people more into the organization. It might not be about face-to-face or being able to hold somebody's hand, but it's still being able to pick up a phone and call somebody. I know we're all over Zoomed and, you know, seeing our faces on our laptops, but that still is a connection and that can still be done in a confidential and supportive way. So I would I would definitely say that sort of money, financial distress um, and social isolation are compounded at a time like this.
1: And I imagine, as you touched on before, that those issues are magnified for people who've been living with HIV long term. Can you tell us a bit more about the issues that they're raising during COVID?
4: So, um, for many of them, um, so we're looking at our older community people with HIV, and this is like a community of over 50, uh, 50. Now, for these who, for these community members who've been living with HIV for that long, there've been so many complications along their, their life history. And when medications came out, you know, there, there were some really awful meds around you know the ones that ended up giving people comorbidities and we'd hear things about lipastrophy and um, lipidistrophy all you know, all those things that seem from another bygone era as people age with HIV the complications become more complex um, so you know you could be living with heart disease or um, diabetes as well as managing your HIV and um, Many of our, you know, our older people living with HIV, they've lost so many friends along the way. You know, for those who were lucky to make it through the new regime of drugs, um, there were many who didn't. And that's a loss of community for many of uh people we we work with. Um, and for them, you know, family may not be around. Many of them are socially isolated. Physically they're they're not able to get around and they may not be part of the tech savvy generation, you know the The things that worked well for us with um, certain members of our uh, communities were you know sitting around having a cup of tea or just having a drink together and seeing somebody's face and having a warm embrace um, and those are really pointedly um, you know sort of lacking at the moment because we just can 't do it
1: so the epidemic's really compounding and and um and and highlighting and 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 expanding some really deeply entrenched grief and loss issues that people must have
4: absolutely and you know i hate to use that word but you know it it does remind people you know almost like a trigger of you know a a life that's gone before that was very similar you know the being shut away at home being not necessarily able to see people or be with friends when you're having a deep dark moment you know that that's that's revisiting something that you know we, we hope people never had to do again
1: and I imagine as well, if people do have physical symptoms from that regime of treatments that did, you know, have terrible impacts on their bodies, that also compounds the stigma and also then the mental health effects of that stigma.
4: They're all all intertwined. There's no that they kind there's cross sectionality that happens. You know, no one. Aspect of somebody's health and well being can ever be separated from the other issues that they're going through, um, but you know, as as an organisation, we really try and to work sort of with people holistically and find a way that you know that, that's very often led by you know the person we're sort of dealing with about what works for them and to explore what's possible um, and how we can be more inclusive or how they can feel more engaged. Um, and these past six months, you know, we're all working from home, but we 've done some amazing things um, you know to to still maintain relationships with people when they can 't see us you know physically it 's been great. Um, we have a couple of events that we run each year, like the Candlelight Memorial and World AIDS Day that have always been really big gatherings of people in public spaces um, but we ran the Candlelight Memorial online this year, and I think it was seen by over five hundred people on the night we had beautiful heartwarming speeches, we had choruses singing, we had some great keynote speakers, and we're looking to see that again for World AIDS Day later this year.
1: Fantastic. So tell us, Susie, a bit about yourself and how you ended up in this amazing role
4: at Living Positive Victoria. Oh, this is going to be the bit that sounds really, doesn't sound as polished. Um, Well, hopefully, as you can tell, um, I'm originally from the UK. My parents are Indian and um, they migrated to the UK, gosh, over 50 years ago, um, and I was born there. Um, I was so fortunate because my parents packed me off to a, a boarding school in India where I learned the language, I learned to speak Hindi, very sound of music, and lots of nuns there. <laughs> um, and then um, I, um, I did, there wasn't a career pathway into HIV. Um, when I left school, I I did a master's in business administration because every good Indian parent wanted their child to be, you know, a doctor a lawyer or a businesswoman. But I, I I saw this opportunity to volunteer at an HIV organisation that needed somebody with uh, Hindi speaking skills to work with uh, people from the Indian subcontinent, Um, and that was just as a volunteer. Um, Before I knew it, I got a job as an administrator there, became the volunteer coordinator, and then made the big move to migrate to Australia about twenty years ago, and. And as luck would have it, the first time I opened a newspaper, um, I realized there was a job going at what was then the Victorian AIDS Council and the building was literally two doors away from where I was living at the time. And I thought, aha, <laughs> that's, that's a sign. So, um, moved from the AIDS Council to people living with HIV AIDS Victoria, as it was called then, um, did some volunteer work with them, did some contract work with them. And 15 years later, I've now done seven different roles in that organisation. Um,
1: wow. So it's all very serendipitous.
4: Yeah, I, I have to say, and this is a sneaky one, my friends always ask me, um, as a heterosexual woman, how come you ended working in HIV when the epidemic was very much about men who have sex with men and gay men in the UK at the time? Uh, and I came from a very strict family. My mother didn't like me having men as friends. <laughs> um uh, So I discovered that having gay men in my life was something that sort of never worried my mum and she was always reassured by the fact that my gay friends would bring me home safely at the end of the night and have always had the best intentions.
1: Wow, okay, so you've got a real connection with the gay community. That's wonderful.
4: Yeah, and, you know, I've lost so many friends over the years. You know, London at the time was a really terrible place to be in the 80s. With HIV. So, you know, I, it's, it's what you were saying about that community driven moment, you know, those who are affected and those who are moved and those who are horrified by what they see. Um, I think build a collectivity that sort of spurs us to advocate for all the humanity of um, the cause.
1: And of course, being a young person in the 80s in the UK with so many friends dying, that must have had an incredible impact. On you emotionally, but also on your worldview as well.
4: Yeah, I think so, very much so. Um, yeah, you know, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. You know, I'm I'm so privileged. I come from a, a very strong family network where I had every opportunity to gain an education. You know, to have a roof over my head um, and to travel. Um, but this made no sense at all. You know, to see strong, you know, amazing, creative, intelligent, academic. Um, Beautiful people just inexplicably um lose their lives, you know, to something that, yeah, and they had every reason to live because their lives are so amazing. Um, and, you know, I think it, it was a real insight into what's important in our lives and what we should fight for.
1: So the HIV-AIDS epidemic has clearly fueled uh, and evoked a great sense of, of social justice in you.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, my parents were so brilliant. They always encouraged me to um, do some voluntary work. When I was as young as 15, um, I used to work with autistic children. Um, I did a lot of work working with um, Southeast Asian women, um, going through domestic violence. Um, and then I guess I found my niche um, you know, working with Indian sort of communities affected by HIV and that kind of opened up my world. So, uh, yeah, my parents have always instilled a very, very strong sense of social justice um, and, you know, that's what, that's what makes me feel, I guess, privileged to be part of, that, you know, I'm in a position where I can bring people on board and we can fight for things that matter.
1: Susie Melhotra, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been an absolute pleasure.
4: Thank you so much, James. 3CR
1: their album Black Celebration that was Depeche Mode with New Dress. Taking us out is Massive Attack with Teardrop and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.